Oh, hi, and welcome to the Uncaring Universe, a podcast about storytelling and world building, hosted by me, Danny Soulfield Waitson, in partnership with Tor UK, my favourite publishers of sci fi, horror, and fantasy. This month, I'm joined by Arcady Martin, author of the incredible new space opera, A Memory Called Empire which is a political thriller set at the heart of a galaxy-spanning empire whose protagonist is the new ambassador from a small society at the edges of the empire's reach. We talk about Arcady's love and knowledge of Byzantinism, how it's informed her city-building, as well as her unique approach to creating alien linguistics and culture, and of course, the nature of empire itself. This was a really, truly fascinating chat full of incredible knowledge and storytelling and world-building wisdom. So hopefully you'll enjoy listening and reading the book as much as I did. Okay, hello, Arkady. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, it's great to be here. <laughs> good, good. So um, where are you? Where am I speaking to you from at the moment? Oh, well, currently I'm in a hotel room in Philadelphia because I ran away for the weekend to try to finish the second book in this series. Um, but most of the time I'm in either Baltimore or New York City. Okay, amazing. So, and um, A Memory Called Empire is out in a couple of weeks, is it, if I remember correctly? Or Yeah. Amazing. Um, I think the US version is out on March 26th, which is three weeks, dear God. Um, and the UK and the rest of the English world um, should be, I think, the week after, so April 2nd. Amazing. Well, I've been loving the book. I'm excited for everyone else to be able to get to grips with it. How are you feeling about it being about to come out? I'm incredibly excited and also mildly terrified, but mostly <laughs> excited. <laughs> what, um, you know, if... If all of the critics agreed on one thing, you know, what would be uh, the best case scenario that people comment on, you know, that they take away from the book? Oh, wow. Um, I hope that people really get the, the sense of like visual and emotional power of this imaginary empire I've put together, the Empire of Tixkalan, and think about like, the ways in which imperialism is seductive and how dangerous that is. And also that they have a good time while doing it. Like this is this is a book with a ton of large, heavy political ideas, but it's also meant to be a book that's a really good time to read. So <laughs> Well, I've had a good time reading it, as well as learning about good. the machinery of empire. So <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you needn't worry. So I believe you studied, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Byzantine Empire. Yes. Is that right? So uh, I have a PhD in that, actually. Amazing. Um, I, yeah, I spent about uh, a decade of my life doing that. Um, I have a PhD from Rutgers University here in the US, and I also studied at Oxford Classical Armenian, which is part of what I did as a Byzantinist was look at the contacts between Byzantium and Armenia in the 10th and 11th centuries. Amazing. So when it comes to world building and city building, you've got a bit of an unfair advantage. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> yes, but that's just because history is the trade secret of science fiction, which um, is not me. That's not my, original to me. That is uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who said that to me, uh, the uh, chief editor at Tor once. Um, and I have taken that to heart. It has helped me a great deal. <laughs> It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, world building is so important to sci-fi and fantasy. And of course, that's a very 
creative discipline but you know you always find that the authors who have some kind of yeah historical or you know scientific background um it it just comes across as that bit more vivid because of course you know you've you've studied like you say for 10 years you know how these things really work and how they're put together so you know people like um seth dickinson oh god yes seth's brilliant um i mean i disagree with him about empire which i think i said in a review once but He's brilliant, and he like I disagree with him in the way that it's fun to have arguments. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, it's boring if you agree with everyone. Um, what inspired oh, exactly. you to study um, Byz- well Byzantinism? <laughs> um, God, I think. Well, I was a religious studies major in university um, as an undergraduate. And I had to take a distribution class um, that was about Islam. Um, a, trust me, this gets to where we're going. Uh, so I looked through the course catalog for courses that looked vaguely interesting and fit in my schedule and came across something called Byzantium and Islam. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. Um, and the Islam was interesting and I learned a great deal. And Byzantium hooked me like a fish on a wire. Um, I loved it initially because it was the Roman Empire, but made more so and also really screwed up. And (laughs) I had always loved Roman imperialism and been interested in what I had been studying as an undergraduate was uh, like the very early Romanization of Christianity. So the way that imperial rhetoric sort of infected this nascent religious, um, really sort of underclass movement uh, and then it became a state religion so i was fascinated by that and byzantium was what happened when those two things had become one thing um that the empire and the idea of the christian empire and the christian emperor had become like this one object while still being rome uh byzantines completely not completely, but often believe that they are in fact just the Roman Empire continue, that there is no brick. Um, That's all over their rhetoric. And I also loved their rhetoric and their language. And Greek is is beautiful, though very, very difficult. And the things that Byzantine literary culture does, which actually shows up in this book a lot, uh, I stole most of the concepts of how Texcalani literary culture works from how Middle Byzantine court literary culture works. So that was the hook. And then I had been wanting to stay in academia. Um, at least then I've since made other choices. But uh, I, so I was looking for what I wanted to do. And, and so that was what I was obsessed with when I was applying to PhD programs. I became a Byzantine historian which was actually a really fantastic way to spend my 20s. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, and, and it comes across, you know, so so much in the book. You, you talked yeah. about the court literature and um, and you studied ancient Armenian. And, and I want to come back to, you know, how big a part the formation of language plays in the book. But just quickly, you you spent a decade studying that stuff. What then made you decide to create a novel from that how did you go from academia into being a novelist um well i've been writing all the time i ha- i 
started publishing short stories while I was finishing my dissertation, actually. So it wasn't as if I was doing the one and then I switched to the other. But and I wrote most of this book while being a postdoctoral researcher at Uppsala University in Sweden. Um, I sort of never expected the book to go anywhere, which I know sounds hilarious, but it was like, I'm writing exactly what I want. So it was a delight that it got picked up and has had the response that it has had already. Um, but actually, I, I don't seem to be able to do only one thing at a time. Um, so when I left academia, or at least formal academia, like university employment academia, I still consider myself a historian, I always will be, um, I actually became a city planner, which is what I do now. Um, so I try to keep cities from drowning or drying up. I do climate mitigation work. Amazing. And, uh, and that was in part because I wanted to do something really hands-on. Um, and however much I love it, Byzantine history of the 11th century is not all that hands-on um, <laughs> about the world is right now. It's not not, but it's not very. Um, and the other reason was that I got married and I wanted to be able to pick where I lived and work a job that I knew would still be there. And the current academic job market is a mugs game and also deeply exploitative of labor. And that's a, I will bracket how that that particular rant <laughs> <laughs> oh, i can imagine well it sounds like a sensible yeah. choice so okay wow yeah well, i definitely come back to uh city planning in a second but but as i said i want to kind of um dive a bit deeper into into language and the formation of language poetry and and the court language as you mentioned play such a huge part of the book and for me it's what makes it so evocative you know it really sticks in your head um as well as the naming conventions of of the characters of the uh Tezcalan empire and for people that obviously haven't read it yet um you know everybody basically has a the first name is like a numeral right like 20 and then usually yeah, like a flower or a... um there are specific rules about the nouns especially um Basically, you, you have a number, and it's almost always a number less than 100. Um, and low numbers are much more common. So you end up with, uh, there's a major character called three seagrass, for example. Um, and the second part, the noun part, is a plant, an object, or a concept. No animals, nothing that moves on its own. Um, it has to think, you can have things that move, but they have to be directed, like a car yeah. <laughs> or a spaceship. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's, you know, it, it's a really uh, original I, I, concept. Oh, it's not original at all. I mean, I guess it is in terms of having used it in a book, but I did not make it up. It is from um, the uh, the peoples of the Mesoamericas actually talking about their rulers and their um, gods. You have names like one jaguar in um, Mixtec and uh, uh, Mexica languages. So I, uh, in addition to Byzantium, there's a lot of thinking about the Aztec empires, the Mexica, um, that went into this book. And one of the things that I wanted to pick up on was that particular naming convention, which I really love and which, like, I think ties the people very much to their landscape and their world. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to borrow it, um, so that all of the Texcalalitzlim um, feel really connected to their physical environment. So you have like 
what do they see every day that's in their names. That's fascinating. And and yeah, that really comes across, for example, it also gives you the chance to kind of just really, really play with the, you know, the expectations that name sets up. So, you know, a character I love is um, Ten Pearl and the way he wears, you know, a pearl ring on every finger as a kind of pun, you know, on, on his own yeah. name, the name he was given. So, yeah, yeah it's it's a fascinating uh, system. I like him. He's an asshole, but I really like him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you love to hate him. And um, for, for when anybody listening uh, does start reading the book, there is a pronunciation guide at the back. So don't miss that because it's really fascinating both to see, you know, how you um, can put the language together and, and the rules that you describe for, you know, how they um, speak the language, but also obviously it just helps you read <laughs> and, uh, and kind of hear it yeah. in your own head. So don't skip the pronunciation guide at the back. The, there are two big languages in the book, and both of them are in the pronunciation guide, though only one I did in detail because that's the one that's more made up. Um, the language of the Empire, Tixkalan, um, is somewhat based off of Nahuatl, which is the language that was spoken by the Aztecs and is spoken today by many indigenous people um, in Mesoamerica. And it's not a direct like copy in any way um, but I use some of the same pronunciation rules and the consonant rules that uh, Nahatl uses to sort of give that feeling to the language um, and the other language the language spoken by the stationers of Lasalle station is very 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 close to Armenian um, and the enjoyable part of that was realizing that native speakers of Texcalanli would have a really hard time pronouncing anything in Stationer <laughs> because Texcalanli does not have many consonants at all. And Stationer has like 8 billion, um, <laughs> including some that are really hard to say. <laughs> so that, that gave me some uh, room to do some playing around with the mistakes people make when they're learning languages and trying to say things in other people's languages. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, you know, conlang and, and creating language and evocative and memorable terms is so important to, I mean, writing of all kind, but especially sci-fi and fantasy. What advice would you give to anybody writing their own stuff, um, you know, who, let's face it, probably aren't going to be going into as, as much detail as, uh, as you have? I mean, some people, you know, are will and are incredible and um you know the conlang community always blows my mind but on a, yeah, on a basic level blows yeah it's it's amazing i mean just but looking on at my it basic level, on a basic level my advice is don't only do as much as you absolutely have to don't sit down and think you have to write a grammar of your book mm -hmm. before you start writing your book it's completely unnecessary <laughs> set up some basic rules when you realize that you're like repeating the same kind of sounds um if you there's like sounds you like that show up a bunch in the names of your characters, etc. then and you want to have a consistent language that notice those patterns and write them down and then try not to break them or break them for good reasons. Um, and make up words when you need them. But most of the time, I try to not make up too many words. I want the experience of reading the book to be pretty seamless. So the majority of the invented words that show up in this book are people's titles and people's um, 
like descriptions of like particular objects or names for particular things that don't exist on earth, uh, particular kinds of flowers or a national dish. But you don't need to invent a fake version of sword or of like laser. Mm. Uh, those are perfectly good words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's brilliant advice. And, and I agree. I think every so often um, people can get a bit carried away with proper nouns. <laughs> Right. And replacing everything, every good, perfectly yeah. good word with, uh, you know, uh, vibra blade instead of a sword. Unless, uh-huh. unless you have a very good reason to. Like vibra blade. Sure. I, I kind of get what that means. Like that's different than sword. That one clearly vibrates in some fashion, but is also <laughs> like a sword. But if instead of saying sheep, I call them all fnergs. <laughs> like... That, that to me, I don't know why people try to do that. It's no. confusing and uh, <laughs> somewhat unnecessary. You're also making so much work for yourself. Yeah, true. Like you know, now you have to think about like what is the plural of fnerg? <laughs> is it different? <laughs> Plus, sheep is way catchier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sheep is more fun to say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if I think being something being fun to say. Uh, you know, whether it's just hearing it in your mind or saying it out loud is, is such a big part of things for sure. And, you know, the pleasure of it just rolling off your tongue. So, yeah, but yeah, very interesting advice. So just um, very quickly going back to city planning, one thing I wanted to ask is what's something you think people often get wrong about the way their cities are in books or games or what have you? Hmm, that's an interesting question. People live in cities is what I think people forget and that sounds really sort of basic but it's not cities are are very very live places and people who live in them have very normal patterns of living they go and they buy food they go to some sort of entertainment venue they go to the bar or the pub they go to work the moving through a city is a normal process Often in fantasy and science fiction, I see people having written cities as places which are almost more like levels in a dungeon where it's just dangerous to like go to the corner. <laughs> and that that tends to uh, ring really wrong to me as someone who grew up in New York City and who's lived in a bunch of different cities, yeah, you sometimes have to worry about street harassment or getting mugged if you're in a part of town where that happens. But most of the time living in a city is really, really normal. And cities are very functional spaces for daily life. And that kind of very complex normalcy is often missing to me in a lot of work that is written about them. Hmm. Hmm. Very true. Interesting. Um, there's a, a popular form of court poetry in the book, which is um, a kind of peon to the, the buildings of the city. And you've clearly <laughs> yeah. lived in, in a few throughout your life. Do you have a particular favorite and, and which of you have you lived in? Um, I've lived in New York, Chicago, D.C., Baltimore, very briefly in Phoenix, Oxford, um, Ankara, 
and Uppsala, which is uh, a city in Sweden a little bit north of Stockholm. Um, that's all like places I've stayed for more than four months. Um, so a lot of places. Oh, I forgot one. Fredericton, Canada, <laughs> uh, which is uh, the capital of the province of New Brunswick. For those of you in the U.S., it's um, if you're in Maine and you keep going, like there's more Maine on top of Maine, except it's Canada. That's where Fredericton <laughs> is. <laughs> so um, New York is my favorite. New York is home. I was born there. I have moved back there at least once and I'm planning on moving back there again. Uh, it's, it is the, the center of the world for me, the way that Constantinople is the center of the world for Byzantines and the way that, um, the city planet is the center of the world for Texcalan. That, that was all very easy to write because I have those feelings, however absurd they are. Um, I think a lot of New Yorkers do, which people think is obnoxious of us and is obnoxious of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to take a very quick coffee pouring break. It's going to, uh, my mic will pick it up. So there we go. One sec. Okay. And uh, do you have a particular favorite building in New York? Well, the obvious one is the Chrysler building. And I love the Chrysler building just for its visuals, um, which are iconic. But I'm really deeply fond of Art Deco and that kind of fan shape of physical architecture. I am also kind of a fan of brutalism. Um, not your standard, just boring, ah, oh, we've made it of concrete, it must be brutalism, but real brutalist buildings, which are incredibly architecturally interesting. You get these very stark visual forms. And I kind of love the Long Lines building, which is a building with no windows in lower Manhattan. It's very tall. Mm. It's made of concrete. It has no windows. Um, it has no windows because it has been used for various government purposes and for security reasons. It could not have windows in it. It is no longer used for those purposes. I think it's currently owned by Verizon, um, though they haven't put any windows in, so I don't know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> Secret Verizon But business. it's this very, very beautiful monolith, and it's really striking in Lower Manhattan because most of the tall buildings in Lower Manhattan are your lovely glass and steel tower type or much earlier. So you get that early, uh, early 20th century um, kind of classical building type. But then you have this thing, which just is there very hugely in concrete. And I love that. Uh, did you know that brutalist buildings were originally supposed to be covered in green things, concrete and greenery? That's kind of fallen out of the the whole idea, but that was part of the original vision. Interesting. I didn't know that, but um, a lot of the brutalist buildings in London along the South Bank and um, the various estates are just kind of naturally like that, or, or maybe that was always the yeah. way. So I've kind of always associated with... I think it, with... it works better in the United <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah it makes a nice contrast the um yeah the royal festival hall and all the all the brutalist buildings along the south bank um all have yeah like little gardens on top of them or what have you little community gardens it's nice <laughs> it is and i love the contrast when you get like really lush green space and these very like not green architectural objects mm. so one of the things i i love about cities in general is the contrast and the way that those things can blur together yeah and i think that's 
again, excellent advice for anyone kind of world building or, um, you know, be it visually or, or written, is that kind of contrast. I guess cities are so rarely homogenous, are they? The cities are never homogenous. No. <laughs> um, even built cities, cities that are supposed to be one thing, like uh, cities that were created. Um, you think of Brasilia, uh, which was a design city. Uh, and, of course, it doesn't stay that way. Uh, the street finds its own uses, and when the street is the thing that is being used, it really finds its own use. Mm. Nothing ever stays still in a city. Cities are always objects that are created by being lived in. Um, a place is not real unless it has people in it, using it. Absolutely. Okay, so something else I wanted to comment on and ask you about is the theme of memory, um, which, you know, isn't a spoiler. <laughs> it's in the title. Yeah. Uh, so it's clearly, but it, but I don't want to spoil too much for people who haven't read it, exactly how the, uh, the imagos work. But um, memory, as I was thinking about it, isn't a theme that seems to often crop up in sci-fi or fantasy very much. It's kind of uh, touched on, um, I guess, fairly often in kind of Anne Leckie's work. Uh, but again, that's that's almost more identity than memory. So I was wondering what what brought you to memory as a, such a key theme for the novel. And also, uh, if you can comment without spoiling, or if you, you know, you know, is it something <laughs> that continues uh, throughout the trilogy? I can talk about it without spoiling. Um... The reason that I got so interested in memory for this was that I was it was that I was thinking about identity um, and the way that memory is part of the construction of a person's sense of self. Um, what we remember is kind of how we constitute ourselves. Like I'm a person to whom this happened. Like that forms your reactions. It forms your sense of how you are in the world so I'm interested also in the ways in which memory is multi-generational as far as we are aware humans are the only species on earth that passes knowledge cross-generationally so we have methods of conveying memory from one individual to another who did not experience the same thing. And those are storytelling. That's the method that we've got. Um, and that comes in various forms and types. So that really fascinates me as a historian and as a person. How do memories get passed down? Why is this such a fundamental function of civilization? And how does it reflect the ways in which one culture or another values particular things. How do we convey memory? Um, and I explore some very different ways of doing that in this book. Um, <laughs> and see, no spoilers. <laughs> and also, I'm really interested also in the ways in which memory is a physical process, that it's not just a thing that happens in your mind or because you read something or you're raised in a certain way because there's no separation between the mind and the body. We, our minds are physical. So memory is also hooked up to your endocrine system, to your sympathetic nervous system, um, to your genetics. Uh, there are epigenetic changes that seem to pass through families that you can have trauma passed down generations 
um, the same way you pass uh, any genetic trait. So these things fascinate me. How is there a, how can something that seems so personal and so individual and so closed off from the rest of the world as what I remember about myself be something which is also completely biologically constructed? stuff I'm interested in. Um, and then I play with that a great deal in this book. Amazing. Yeah. And, and it is such a fascinating concept. As I was reading, you know, it called to mind uh, something I often like to think about, which is, you know, how ancestral memory works in animals. And like you say, we don't, or we don't think of having that as humans, but you know, the more we learn and what we learn about gene expression and stuff like that. And um, you realize that we do have it. Like you say, trauma can be passed down. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of certain predispositions to things through genes. It's it's so crazy that we're starting to actually discover that in a scientific way, uh, as well as yeah. yeah, think about it more artistically. Um, wow, yeah, I'd love to talk to you for a whole other hour about that, but <laughs> sadly, we're very almost uh, up time-wise. So I just want to very quickly ask you one last thing. Um, I have to pick between two questions, but I'm going to settle on this one just quickly. Do you have any heuristics or, or kind of little mental models for deciding on what works like once you've written something how do you say to yourself this is good and I'm keeping it well this is where I have to reveal that I'm one of those terrible people who doesn't outline at all um okay it's not quite true I kind of outline like maybe two or three scenes ahead and I know where the end is but I don't outline I build things fractally so my sense of what's right often is more aesthetic than anything else. Like, does it feel correct? Does it match the way I wanted this conveyance of information or this plot point to feel emotionally? Like, if I can get that, then, like, I, I know that I'm, I've done the right thing with the plot point or the uh, direction I'm going. Um, I tend to underwrite like when I first turned in the manuscript of a memory called empire it was about 30,000 words shorter than the one you're going to read <laughs> um, so and all of that 30,000 words was my agent and my editor saying well okay but can you explain that in language that people understand <laughs> um, my agent my editor and my wife who's my first reader and my best my best reader um, so I tend to have to put things back in more than I have to ever take things out. Um, my books are kind of like armatures, like skeletons of themselves when I first get them out into the world. Well, personally, I find that quite reassuring. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but yeah, super interesting. I People either react in a way that is reassured or horrified when I say, yes, I write complicated political intrigue and I don't outline. I have no idea. No, I just it's the person who needs to do that and then I figure out why they did it later. <laughs> I think some people, not necessarily you, but um, I'm certainly one of them and I have some friends that, that are kind of, uh, sometimes, you know, if you think too much about the big picture and how hard it's going to be, it's impossible to do anything. So it's better to just kind of, yeah do a little bit at a time and then when you look back on it it seems complicated but um you're like oh, okay cool that works if i'd have known that at the beginning i'd feels, never have even done it <laughs> it feels fractal like if i 
if I outline, I close off possibilities too early, I won't know what I need. Hmm. So if I don't outline, then I get these very sort of organic forms of plot that surprise me as I'm writing them and are more unexpected and more complex than I'd get if I planned everything out from the beginning. Fantastic. Okay, yes, sadly and crazily, it's already uh, time up. Would love to have you back after the next book because there's a lot more more to discuss. But um, just as a final thing, where's the best place for people to keep track of you? Twitter, your website, do you have a newsletter, etc.? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Um, just my name, Arkady Martin, is how you find me on Twitter. I also have a website, um, which is also quite simple, www.arkadymartin.net. Um, and you can sign up for my newsletter on that website, which should tell you uh, where I'm going to be and also occasional amusements of me ranting about some kind of article I read about cities. Um, <laughs> And uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, I like Twitter. It's a good place to hang out with other writers and also to be horrified at the state of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time. It's been an amazing discussion. And like I say, I absolutely love the book. So for everyone listening, get ready to get your hands on it. It's out soon. Um, Thank you for listening as always. And thank you again, Arkady. Thank you again for listening, everybody. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, listen to this on SoundCloud. If you do, if you've enjoyed it, please leave a review, a comment, share on Twitter or social media of your choice. It really helps get this wisdom out there to the people that need it. And I would super appreciate it, you spreading the word about the podcast. So thank you once again and speak to you next month.